Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Among the many enduring memories of the late Congressman John Lewis was his use of the phrase, good trouble. Those words also are the title of an exhibition of photos on view at the Mint Gallery. Later in the program, we'll hear how race, identity, and beauty are themes of that exhibition, ideas also explored with musicians by our first guest today. Throughout recent months, we frequently heard about the importance of amplifying black voices, the idea is nothing new for pianist Lara Downs, whose work has always been inclusive. Her latest project is a new series for NPR music called Amplify with Lara Downs. She joins us now via Zoom. Lara, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Well, this is such an exciting series. Why is now the perfect time to launch this? Well, it's been quite a year, as you're aware. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and as an artist and as an artist of color, I can't even begin to explain, you know, the impacts of all of the change and upheaval of this year. In the spring, when all of my concerts were canceled, and you know that it was it was just a very devastating time to kind of process personal shift, personal closure like that, along with this global tragedy. And my instinct was to reach out to my colleagues, to reach out to other musicians, and just kind of share the experience of how we were navigating this time. And the conversations were so illuminating because we were all experiencing grief and loss and fear. But at the same time, we were immediately doing a lot of self-examination and kind of reimagination of ourselves as musicians. And then as our national story this year sort of expanded from pandemic to, you know, racial divide, racial tension, racial violence, we all just responded in very interesting and very individual ways to that double experience. 
How do those different dynamics come together in Amplify? We should add, it's a video series for NPR Music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are informal conversations. You know, these are my colleagues, my friends, my fellow travelers. So really, we're just kind of sitting down and talking about what we're making of this time and what we're making in this time. And we're all, I mean, all of us, all of us as human beings, we're learning a lot this year. And I think as musicians, we're learning about how our individual innermost personhood connects with our music making in a new way. You know, being a musician, it's such a strange thing, right? It's a job and it's a calling and it's a, it's who you are. It's, you know, in your blood and it, you, you rarely have a chance to kind of examine the workings of why you do what you do. Indeed. And not only do you have these multiple identities as a musician, but they don't all come together simultaneously. I know that with this being the year of the woman, you were dedicating yourself to music of Clara Schumann. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right. But also music of Florence Price. Yes. And um, we're going to talk about some of that in a bit. But not all of the important components of your identity uh, come into play at once, which I think must make it all the more complex. Not to say that Black Lives Matter isn't complex itself, but you do have this association with the European musical canon as sort of a foundation. And now you also can enlighten others about growing and moving beyond that. Yeah, yes. You know, I think about this all the time. You know, I I question what's driving me. And I think it's, it's a lifetime search, of course. It's a lifetime search for meaning, for identity, for value, a purpose. And I think, again, as musicians, we start so young that music is our first home, right? So for me, the piano and the music that I've played on the piano was my first home. What does that mean? That means that this European classical tradition is the place I grew up. Maybe more so than, you know, the living, breathing reality of San Francisco, California, where I was growing up. I was more involved with 19th century Germany, you know, and 18th century Vienna than, than my real life. That's how music is. It sucks you in and, you know, you're a weirdo and that's where you live, right? And so then as I've come through my life, there are these other parts of me. There are the the human parts of me and I need to find them. You know, there's the female part of me. Where do I find that in this tradition? There's the black part of me. Where do I find that in this tradition? I need to make these puzzle pieces fit. And I'm so grateful for that search for self because it's led me to such fascinating discoveries. Now, this series premiered last month with the extraordinary Rhiannon Giddens. In the conversation, Rhiannon talks about 
having to forge her own path in the music industry because there was not one laid out for black female banjo players. I am a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world alone There is no sickness, toil, or danger In that fair land to which I go advice do you hope to pass along to young black or non-white musicians looking to forge their own paths? You know, honestly, I would give the same advice to any young musician. And it it's about being true to yourself. None of us are the same. You know, and I've for years I've been talking to young pianists and saying don't try to be the best pianist in the world because that's not a thing that exists. Be yourself. Find the part of yourself that has something unique and specific and direct and important to give and focus on that part. So whether you're, you know, a young black girl who wants to play the banjo or you're a pianist in conservatory trying to find your own path to your future, I, I think it's all the same. I think this is about being human and embracing your humanity and directing it into a place that has something meaningful to give. Laura, you have addressed audiences. You've spoken eloquently about music. I mean, you are more than a performer. How has it been to spend more time behind the mic rather than at the keyboard in this role of hosting Amplify. What drives me here to know these stories and share these stories, it's really the same thing that drives me at the piano. You know, I think that more than anything else, I am a storyteller. And whether I'm doing that through my music making or through conversations like this, that's what I want my lifetime legacy to be. I love making radio. I love writing. And this has just been a beautiful way to take this time, you know, which is a time of so much transformation and, and let a different part of myself be part of this time. I think that what's really important to me, both at the piano and behind the mic in everything that I do right now is capturing where we are, because I think that we're someplace very important. I think this year is a year that we should be documenting. It's a year that's changing all of us. And so to invite my fellow musicians in and to create this, you know, living document of what we're experiencing, what's being made in this time. I feel really honored to have the opportunity to do this. What's your selection process for choosing each interview? Musicians have reacted to this time in so many different ways. It's been hard. And so I'm just kind of looking for the people who are making some kind of change. And, you know, as you've seen from the different conversations, there are really different responses. And some of the change is internal. It's just, you know, reimagining ways of being a musician in the world. Some of it is 
external, these, you know, the events around us propelling us to do things that we hadn't imagined doing before. Like in the case of Anthony McGill, who's really stepped into this role of leadership and activism. So I'm just kind of feeling, you know, the, the energy in the music world and, and wanting to talk with people who are, whose work is, is changing the future. Anthony McGill is the principal clarinetist for those who may not be familiar with him. Yeah, principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic and someone who has really always been what I call a musician's musician, you know, just devoted to his craft and his art and um, really keeping it, I think, apart from other influences or issues. And this spring, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, he was just compelled to take a stand through his music and created an action that reverberated throughout the music world and showed him, I think the potential for activism through artistry. What can you tell us about your video of Leonard Bernstein's Take Care of This House? Oh, that was such an adventure. <laughs> you, know, you know I have a history with Bernstein. Yes. Um, yes, and did a big tribute project in his centennial year a few years ago. And and. When you ask me, you know, what drives me, what inspires me, always, Lenny, always in terms of being an artist, citizen, an activist, someone who was making music in his time, you know, who was always connected to the, the tides of his time. So a couple of months ago, I guess, I was just going about my business and I all of a sudden thought about this song, Take Care of This House, which he wrote um, in 1976, as part of a musical called 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, which was an epic Broadway flop. Can you believe after it? After three nights. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I, and and I, I have this feeling that that show would be a huge success now. But it was, you know, it was ahead of its time, I think. It was a real examination of our history, the first 100 years of the White House, and really considering, you know, our racial history and some pretty deep issues. And then, you know, it opens on Broadway in the midst of bicentennial celebrations and nobody wanted to hear any of it. But this song, Take Care of This House, is about the White House as the home and the hope of all of us and our responsibility to take care of it and to, you know, keep it safe from harm. So I just thought about about this song as kind of an anthem and a call to vote, a call to do our civic duty. So I started reaching out over the phone to um, first to the Bernstein family to get their blessing, which they gave happily, and then to the ACLU to see if we could partner with them and do something for their voting rights project, and then to a bunch of friends and colleagues, including Yo-Yo Ma and Rhiannon, Anthony, um, this really beautiful list of American artists who are first and foremost, you know, citizens of our country and our world. And it was an incredible opportunity in the midst of our isolation and our confinement to come together and make something that felt meaningful and beautiful. So we, you know, we did this with 
our uh, low-tech technology, everybody recording themselves just on their phone, doing a little bit of a song and then editing it together into this really beautiful reading of um, a wonderful, wonderful song. It's breathtaking. And I have to say, you are heiress apparent or the current incarnation of Lenny with your storytelling ability and with eloquence sounds too removed. Your enthusiasm and your ability to speak about music in a way that non-musicians are drawn in by what you're saying. Thank you. That means so much. Well, speaking of so much, so much in the way of congratulations is now due you because we just learned that you have been named a venture fund recipient by the Sphinx organization. What does this mean? (laughs) Breaking news this morning, yes. Well, this is just incredibly generous support for me to launch a project which I'm calling Rising Sun Recordings, which will release recordings of about 200 years of music by black composers. It's never before been recorded, never before been heard by the listening public. And this is really a crossroads in in my journey because I've been investigating this music for so long now and doing everything I can do to amplify it and share it. And I think that now is the moment to really just redefine the canon of classical music, to redefine, you know, the community around it, the audience for it, who it belongs to. And I think that the way to do that is to put this music out, you know, over the airwaves, over the streaming services, just change the sound of this music so that what we imagine when we think of you know, this this world of classical music is something much more diverse and something much more true to our origins. I'm so thrilled and excited to do this. And the music itself is just glorious. And I think it's going to change a, a lot for the future. I think about the next generation of young musicians. You know, I've had to work so hard to find this music, just to, to find it and, you know, and, and kind of fight for it. And if this music just exists out there in the ether, really, really changes, I think, the sound and the look of the next generation. Laura Downs is an acclaimed pianist and host of NPR Music's new video series, Amplify. Her most recent episode was released this past Saturday. By the way, in episode one, Lara interviewed banjo player Rhiannon Giddens, who is the new artistic director of Silk Road, the cross-cultural music organization. There will be more information about Lara Down's bi-monthly conversations on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Among the many enduring memories of the late Congressman John Lewis was his use of the phrase, good trouble. Those words are also the title of an exhibition of photos on view at the Mint Gallery. Jessica Helfricht is the executive director of Mint Gallery. She joins us now with Mary Stanley of Atlanta Celebrates Photography. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you, Lois, as always, our hero of the creative realm. (laughs) Oh, you are very kind. This is a privilege, especially during these times. Well, let's talk about the name Good Trouble. Why is that a fitting representation of the exhibition itself? Well, the exhibition is an annual effort for Atlanta Celebrates Photography. For the past 11 years, I've been curating a selection of young emerging photographers called The Ones to Watch. And each year I present 10 artists that I consider to be very collectible, very relevant, timely in their photography presentations. And this year, with the pandemic, with all of the Black Lives Matter and the other protest movements, I have been very, very interested in social justice as the main rally point for the selection of artists. So in past years, I've selected three artists from Atlanta and 10 from parts beyond. I start at the beginning of the year and compiling those groups. And the issues of racial justice and social justice, identity, are key themes in the work of almost every artist that's in the selection this year. And so the title Good Trouble meant a lot to me. First of all, an acknowledgement of one of the finest and most wonderful statesmen from our fair city, John Lewis, to honor his memory and also to recognize that these young artists have something very important to say about what's going on in our times. And they do have a very upbeat and positive outlook in light of the challenges that we're facing right now. And I felt that their photography could be a way to lift us up in this troubled time and to give us some hope and some things to look forward to, uh, both in their work and just in general. Jessica, how did Mint come to partner with Mary? Mary and I have known each other for a number of years. I met her when I worked in a gallery in Castleberry Hills when she first started her Young Collectors Club. And we've done all sorts of art projects and art trips together. And then last year, Mint was lucky enough to host Ones to Watch in our new home here at at the Metropolitan. And Mary and I work well together, and I appreciate her eye and her curatorial skills. So we were thrilled to partner again this year to host her exhibition. Mm. And 
Jessica, why are emerging artist events such as Once to Watch so vital to the health of Atlanta's art scene? There is so much talent in Atlanta and so many artists of all of all mediums here. And so Mint really acts as that access point to get your feet in the art community. And, and that's also what Mary's doing with the ones to watch with emerging artists. So it's just a way for artists to come and show their work that might be experimental, might not be something that would totally be in a retail gallery and introduce audiences to new faces and new talent. So I think the emerging artist is, is so important to the ecology. It's the beginning of somebody's career and to have a, a couple of places in Atlanta where that's welcome and wanted, I think is, is fabulous for Atlanta and for Atlanta's artists. Well, this is in good trouble. This is just good work, good deed. Yes. Mary, how did you go about selecting the photographers represented here? I think you probably had many submissions. I don't act on submissions. I basically act as a free agent and I travel around the U.S. I go to a lot of the big art fairs. I travel to portfolio reviews and I really, I find a lot of the artists that I work with on portfolio review. I also mine the internet. This has been a good year for that. I traveled quite extensively in January through March of this year. And um, so I did get around the country and see what was going on nationally. But I decided this year to focus my energy more locally. And a lot of the artists that I've been introduced to by other artists that I esteem and just sort of going down that rabbit hole of looking for thematic work, Instagram. I have two artists this year that are big Instagram phenoms, and one of which, Brian McLean, has never printed his work until this year. So he has over 12,000 followers on Instagram and a definite uh, acknowledgement of his talent and his abilities there. But he also has an interest in fine art and an interest in developing his career path in that avenue. So that was a a wonderful find for me as well. What impressed you about Rosie Brock's photograph, Teen Cowboy? Well, Rosie Brock is a very, very accomplished photographer. She is Um, finishing her MFA at Lamar Dodd School of Art at University of Georgia. I sit on the board of Lamar Dodd uh, School of Art, and I always look for artists within their stable of artists because they have very consistent talent. But Rosie has very, very strong skills. She prints all of her own work. Um, She does a lot of editorial work and portraiture, and I'm very much drawn to her portraiture. How does her work challenge the mythology of the American South? Her work is changing a little bit this year with the pandemic because she has tried to focus very specifically on portraiture, and that has made her turn internally towards her family and other safe subject material during this year, but I think her work is just talking about a lot of the sort of social norms, uh, what is natural 
in the Southern landscape. And then she adds her own twist to that. The burned out car, (laughs) the signage, different aspects of youth culture, I think is the thing that most drew me to her work is the way that she insightfully looks at young people and what you see in her portraiture of the teen cowboy and of Florida boy, who's also featured in the exhibition, really says a lot about the youth culture of the 21st century. Another artist is Alexis Childress. Her photo, Protect and Serve, is striking. We see an image of arms forming a cross. In what ways does her work illustrate a visual interpretation of her life experience? So Alexis Childress is a graduate of Georgia State University, and for her body of work that is presented in this exhibition, she has been using her own body to explore the issues of Blackness and feminine in the feminine realm. And so all of the photographs in this presentation are photographs of her own body, which then she uses mixed media and collages those images in a way exploring not only the history of the Black woman, but the plight of their future and the challenges of their future. So in Protect and Serve, I think um, there's a lot of things going on, but I think the fact that her arms are there away from her body (laughs) is a very meaningful, obviously the slash of red paint indicating bloodshed or suffering. There's just a whole lot of depth and meaning to the work uh, that she's presented. I wondered too about arms, the word itself on two different levels, not only our limbs, but armed police She also has another photo in the exhibition in which she has placed herself in the role of a young person. It's called Walk to Juvie. And she shows herself shackled and going to juvenile detention. So again, trying to put herself in the place of other Black women and the experiences they've had and really creates that empathy and that sort of desire to understand and to heal, I think, um, comes out very strongly. I was hoping to speak about one more artist. Patrick DeRito is an Atlanta-based artist. His use of color in Rapture Blue is outstanding. How does he use color to explore issues of sexuality and mental health? I think he uses very upbeat colors, juxtaposed with some very difficult and demanding subject material to sort of ease the viewer into the dialogue that he's trying to create. A lot of the the work in this queer color series that is presented is very dark and has a lot of angst to it. Um, This particular image was created before the COVID pandemic, although it seems very symbolic of it with the woman hiding in the shower, wearing a mask, but 
all of these issues are the issues of isolation and some of those things are difficult to get on the table. And I think the color is a vehicle that he uses. He's an architect and a designer. And so he understands color theory and he understands the kind of responses that he will get from those. And so he's creating a real conversation and, and a real sort of tension in the work by using these bright, really pleasant colors to talk about difficult and challenging material. Jessica, what does this exhibition say about art as a way of coping or healing during difficult times? I think this uh, exhibition is right on time, just in a conversation about hope. By Mary choosing these 10 young artists, She's really brought a lot of voices, you know, into the into the gallery. As I stand in front of uh, different photographs, it's it's I, I can kind of relate to to all the images in different ways, and there is a a sense of hope, a sense of change, you know, in their images. And I think that with so many artists talking at once, you do kind of get uplifted from it. There's some really powerful protest issues that just show strength in our young people and. It's really inspirational. So I think as a group to be in here, it, it talks it talks so well about the timeliness of COVID, the timeliness of the civil unrest and, and the protest that's going to lead to change. So I think it does instill hope in, in the viewer. One thing that's really um, also particularly important to note is the courage of Mint in the High Museum and some of the uh, Mocha GA and some of the other entities of getting their doors open during COVID. And I think I would just like to applaud them for that. And the impact of actually being able to stand in front of a beautiful piece of artwork and experience that in person is very, very moving and very special for us right now. And we've seen really a lot of wonderful visitation at Mint. And uh, we have very strict COVID safety procedures in place. And so I will encourage people to come out and see this work in person. Mary Stanley, exhibition curator of Good Trouble and the ACP 2021's To Watch, along with Mint Gallery Executive Director Jessica Helfrecht. Good Trouble is on view at Mint through November 28th. More information will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The Newbery Honor winning author Amy Timberlake has written a new children's story. Skunk and Badger is about two unlikely animal friends. The book also has drawings by the award-winning illustrator John Klassen. Skunk and Badger is the first in a series about two opposites who need to be friends. When we spoke ahead of the author's virtual event with Little Shop of Stories in September, here's how Amy Timberlake described Skunk and Badger's path to friendship. Badger is an important rock scientist, or at least that's how he thinks of himself. And he, every day he goes into 
his rock room and he sits at his rock stool and he sits at his rock desk and he adjusts his lamp and he looks at rocks every single day. This is his everyday life. And then one day there's a knock at the front door and it's the skunk and the skunk is going to be his roommate and he has not heard about this at all. And it's a, it's a terrible shock. As you might imagine, things don't go completely well. And so this story is kind of, a, I would describe it sort of as Wallace and Gromit kind of meets Winnie the Pooh and <laughs> a little bit of the odd couple in it. Yeah, I love so, it. So something like that. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, Badger is an important rock scientist, capital I, capital R, capital S. He lives in a home made available to him by his Aunt Lula. Scientific funding, I'm quoting here, scientific funding, a long-term residency, a grant of time and space. And he turns that home into a shrine for rocks and research. How does skunk contrast to badger? <laughs> yeah, skunk is completely spontaneous and loves knowing other animals. Immediately, he's moving from another town, but he moves in and he's already met people. He's he's met everybody in North Twist. And so he moves in and he's just like a gust, actually a wind gust, comes into that house, into that brownstone. And he moves into a room, he flattens boxes, and then, of course, he invites all these other animals into this house. And this house is just, it's totally quiet, except for a rock tumbler, which makes lots and lots of noise. But other than that, it's just Badger and his cereal in his kitchen. You know, that's what he eats every day. He just eats cereal. And then he goes back to his rock room. So, yeah, it, I mean, skunk is just completely opposite, which which is definitely what you want when you're telling a story. You want the two characters to be on the opposite ends. And then, yeah, the thing is, is they find ways to come together eventually through very many hard things. Like it's actually a it's actually a hard journey for Badger. Well, and Skunk, too, in his own way. How does a skunk begin to win Badger's admiration? Well, through his cooking. I think it's straight through his stomach. He's a very good cook. He's very improvisational in his cooking and a little wild in his cooking, but it is so tasty. And those muffins, in fact, he makes the best breakfast ever. Yeah, his whole his whole thing is that breakfast is the best meal of the day. He sets it up. He's got a candle and he's got fresh muffins and then there's always some great breakfast. And so Badger starts eating something other than that pawful of cereal every day and I don't know, I think things are never the same again. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you use the the word tip clot instead of tiptoed and the fact that they are animals really doesn't matter much in terms of interaction and their general worldviews 
But there are some important lessons in here, seriousness in Skunk and Badger. How does the story address stereotypes, bullying, and prejudice? Oh, yeah. Well, I started writing this story. It's a very humorous and very light story in some ways. But I was, at the time I started writing it, it was during the Syrian refugee crisis. That's when I started it. So I was reading all these news articles about the Syrian refugee crisis. And I sort of simultaneously, I was working on this light story. I just started it. As I was writing that first, the very first chapter of Skunk and Badger, so Skunk and Badger is told in Badger's point of view, but Skunk comes, he knocks on the door, and he basically, the reason, it quickly becomes clear that the reason Aunt Lula has offered the home to Skunk is because he doesn't have one. It's partly because he's a skunk. I mean, it's, it's hard to like skunks. I mean, they spray you. So there's this thing. But only in this skunk's case, only in the direst of circumstances, yeah. he points out. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, I, when you really think about other animals, you think, well, I mean, skunks are actually quite gentlemanly. You will smell, you will smell horrible, but they won't, say, bite you. So, <laughs> so overall, you know, they leave you educated that you should leave a skunk alone and you're completely fine just smelly so anyway so i was reading about the syrian yeah i was reading about the syrian refugee crisis and i was thinking about homelessness actually so in the first chapter skunk says that he used to have a home but he doesn't have one now and when i wrote that line I realized, oh, this is a more serious story. But my process is basically that I just let these things ride <laughs> until, you know, as I work through draft after draft after draft, I just let these things remain in them and see what comes of it. And it actually does resolve itself. Because he's a skunk, you know that probably he's going to spray so at some point in the story. And then this is going to lead to a great problem. <laughs> I mean, it's just a bad, it's a bad thing. Like the smell of skunks is not pleasant. Then, you know, things are said that are really, they're really hurtful. I mean, really hurtful. And I felt like at some point to get the story to the end, which I am trying not to tell too much. To get the story to the end, I, I had to feel like the resolution between these two characters was actually believable. Otherwise, that there was going to be an apology that felt like a real apology with sort of an action that suggested that something was given up in order to bring the two characters together. And I felt like, okay, I found something that actually worked for me. Yeah, so that's kind of how that all happened. I don't know if that was exactly answered your question, but... No, it does, because um, I hadn't thought about homelessness or immigration. It certainly applies. I could see where misunderstanding, misconceptions about refugees would apply here. 
I also thought about racial injustice and how misunderstood this very fine creature is by Badger, who does have his awakening, if you will. The wit and humor throughout this story are marvelous. And the publisher indicates that the target age group for readers of Skunk and Badger is 8 to 12 years old. With that in mind, I wondered about some of the clever references, such as <laughs> Skunk reading Shakespeare and telling ba Badger about Henry V. Skunk is a fabulous cook. He put sun-dried tomatoes and olives in his baked potatoes. My mouth was watering at that. <laughs> the self-seriousness and pun of Badger's signature to his aunt, the end of his letter, he signs on the precipice of an important rock discovery. <laughs> and my favorite, Amy, a bookstore for chickens that has a shelf for chiclet. Ah, oh, yes. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> now, are these sophisticated examples of humor meant for young readers or their parents? Well, I think, all right, I will say that one of my absolute favorite memories growing up is being read to by uh, my parents. And my dad in particular had this great laugh. And I actually have this visceral experience of sitting next to my dad being very young. And he would read a story and he would start laughing about something in the story. And I would be next to him and I could feel him move as he laughed. <laughs> and I just, I would laugh too. I'd always laugh. One of the things I really wanted to do with this book was make something that an adult could read with a child and would laugh. And the child would get the sense of the adult laughing and they could laugh with the adult at the same time, even if they didn't quite get the humor. And that it would be just this memory of sharing a story and sharing laughter. And then, you know, maybe you talk about what that is. Just starting those conversations with kids and there's going to be some stuff that they won't quite get, but I wanted everyone in the family to be able to enjoy this story together, all ages. And I also wanted, when I was thinking about reading aloud, I was also thinking about, I wanted you to be able to read it aloud and the first time get everything right. So I put in sound effects and I would, I tried to not do now that I might've done this. So if I, if I did it, I'm sorry, but I, I tried not to, which is when you're reading, it wouldn't say like have dialogue and then say, he said angrily, because sometimes when you're reading the first time through you for, you don't understand that that's supposed to be angry. So I always tried to make the clue on the front end so you could really read it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yeah, so that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about everybody doing it together and some things you might not get, but we have had some young readers read it and it's so far it doesn't seem like there's any trouble with it. 
they seem like they're able, they're going along and they're having a good time. So I'm pretty happy oh, about I, it. I don't think there would be trouble. I just wondered how those passages would be interpreted by them. And if you have been able to summarize Henry V for an eight-year-old and talking about why war is bad, that's a great thing. A review of Skunk and Badger in the New York Journal of Books says, lovers of Winnie the Pooh stories and the wind in the willows will find it contemporary story in the same vein. So already we have comparisons to these literary classics for children. For me, pop culture also comes to mind. Um, You mentioned The Odd Couple, the Neil Simon play and movie and subsequent TV show, Ernie and Bert, Jim Henson's Muppets. (laughs) Were these conscious influences on your writing, Amy? The Winnie the Pooh was the starting point for this. I was working on a different novel. But for that other novel, I was reading all of these stories about bears that were classic bear stories. So I was reading bear fairy tales, bear mythology, and then I was doing the toy bears. I just included those in. So I reread Winnie the Pooh. It's been a long time since I'd read A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. And I was struck by how beautiful those stories were, how and how well crafted they were, and they were episodic. And I liked the feel in that world a lot. But I knew that I wouldn't really write as the kind of writer that I am, I wouldn't quite write that story. So but it started an idea in my head started me thinking like, what kind of story like that would you write? If you, Amy Timberlake, the writer with, you know, your sense of humor and, you know, your sense of language, which is different than his, what would that be like? It was just a little writing challenge for me. So I did start with that idea of just, though I will say that it, I don't think this is like Winnie the Pooh. So if you were exactly looking for Winnie the Pooh, I would say, think more Wallace and Gromit. I would say that Wallace and Gromit is definitely an influence. I really enjoy those claymations. So that's entirely my encoding was were the additions of Ernie and Bert and and the Muppets, whom I adore. So I only mean that as a compliment. Oh, no, I take that as a compliment. Oh, my goodness. I love those. To be ever included in any of these ranks of Sesame Street or, you know, even in any review to be somebody saying, Winnie the Pooh or even Wallace and Gromit or Wind in the Willows, you're just like, oh, oh my goodness, that's really nice. Thank you. Well, you are welcome. (laughs) We must mention the pictures. Would you talk about the illustrations and the illustrator? Oh, yeah. What an amazing thing to have a book illustrated by John Clausen, who I think everybody knows from 
his hat books. There's a trilogy, I Want My Hat Back with the bear that's lost his hat. I mean, so even if you don't know his name, if you look up this book, Skunk and Badger, and you see the, the cover and you will recognize this guy. And he's so funny and his sense of timing is great. He's got these wonderful eyes on his characters. <laughs> Even if you just look at the front illustration of Skunk and Badger, you can see it. So anyway, he has done some really unusual things with this book. They have actually made it in a classic style. So in those old time classic books, what they did was they would put special paper inside the book and it would be thick paper and they would do full color illustrations and they called those tip-ins. I actually didn't know this name before I started working on this book, but they call that a tip-in. And there are several tip-ins with full color art in this with John Clausen full color art, then there's black and white art. And then if you remove the dust jacket of this book and you look at the boards of the book, which is the hardcover part and hold it up, you actually have the entire brownstone and there are no words on the, on the boards. So it's almost like you have the house right you can set the book up so it looks like you're moving into the house i kind of wish i could show you all this but you should just look at it and then if you go to my website i put some images some pictures of the book so you can see it and john clausen is going to do all three of these books and it's really exciting author amy timberlake speaking about her new book skunk and badger while the reading level is suggested for ages 8 through 12, I highly recommend it for ages 12 and up as well. Way up, in fact. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the new virtual season of offerings at Spivey Hall. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, the more the merrier, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-N. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.